Welcome to the Season 3 finale of Rainbow Colored Glasses, a podcast that looks at LGBT media of the past and asks what it means today. I'm Paul, my guests are Don and Spencer, and we're discussing John Schlesinger's 1971 film, Sunday Bloody Sunday. There will be spoilers. Peter Finch's doctor and Glenda Jackson's consultant are both in a relationship with pop star Murray Head. They've agreed to ignore each other, and Murray's happy to hop between them whenever he gets bored. Last year, pop star Harry Styles starred in My Policeman, a film that placed him in a similar bisexual love triangle. The story reminded me of Sunday Bloody Sunday, so I decided to give it another look and share it with some friends. Now, thank you both for joining. I'm going to start with Spencer. Were you familiar with this film at all? I was not, but I see the echoes to what you speak of. So I didn't realize that until you just mentioned that. But definitely there is a similarity between the two films. And it's definitely, I think, a trope that has been explored somewhat, but perhaps not to the length that it could be. What were some of your first impressions of Sunday? I really appreciated the pace because it's just a different pace than what we're used to today. Really let the characters fill in the time um, with being who they were and with just their reactions. And I think in our daily lives, we do take that time to reflect and pause and all that. But nowadays, we're just trying to get through the movie. And so I think sometimes we lose what makes us human, which is really just those kind of the stillness in, in life too. So I appreciated that. I thought initially I wasn't sure what I was signing up for, I guess. And then it kind of made itself clear. And it was funny how the suspense was treated far differently than what it would have, how it would have been today, because I think today that tension between the two would have been, really pulled at a lot more intensely throughout the film. And in this, it was like, it was there, but it was teased definitely less heavy-handedly. I'm going to hop over to Dawn. Was this your first time seeing the film? I'm going to date myself, but I actually saw it when it debuted. Fantastic. I was 19 at the time. It was a unique period in American history. But I found... I found the movie refreshing after I got used to watching that kind of movie again, because like Spencer was saying, I'm so CG'd out and the pacing of what movies are nowadays, you're, you're almost kind of like expecting it. So I had to slow myself down to kind of get on the pace of the movie. And once I did, I kind of like, it kind of was just like a day in the life of these, you know, relatively mature, normal people who had, certain sexual orientations, but they were just living their life and they were adults. And, you know, it was refreshing from that standpoint and well acted and well produced. And, you know, I started digging into more of the background of it and it's a really interesting piece. I didn't realize that the original person who was writing the script got another assignment and had to leave before the script was complete. Um, I think it was a woman. She turned it over to John. John basically made it autobiographical. So it really became, you know, he was the doctor, the Peter Finch character. And I found, you know, me more meaning once I really understood kind of what the approach of the movie was. But I enjoyed it. Took a while to get used to that style from modern day. But 
in the end. And obviously it was a significant movie of its time. I definitely appreciated it more on a second viewing because the pace is so slow, but homosexuality in the UK had only been legal for about four years. It was 1967 that uh, male-male relations were legalized. So there was a big uproar over the intimate scenes of Peter Finch and Murray Head meet each other in the doorway and they have that kiss and the film crew was freaking out there. Are you okay? Are you okay doing that? (laughs) the, The actors just went for it, but they received a lot of pushback. John Schlesinger had to really fight because he was told, oh, put it in silhouette or this or that. And he said, no, I'm not putting them in silhouette. They're <laughs> just well, going to kiss. Two, two shirtless men, you know, from what we saw, we can presume more, but two shirtless men, one on top of the other, with one clearly clasping the other's back. And they had that mirroring because both um, in both relationships, they did that. And to me, I was like, this was made in 71. Like that was striking to me to see. And and not only that, not only the gender of it all, but the age discrepancy, the fact that it was an older gay man, you know, wooing a younger bisexual man to have that depicted so clearly and with a certain power dynamic too, I thought was really striking. Another perspective though, for context in... 1970, April 18th, actually, I attended the opening of Hair at the Moore Theater in Seattle. And it was a big thing. It was black tie. I would say the average age was 40, 45. But there were a lot of younger people there. Um, It was packed. It was full. And I don't think that many people were shocked by the movie. Because the year before, at the end of Hair, we all took our clothes off. The entire freaking audience got naked. We were in the moment because everybody on stage was naked. There was also Timothy Leary running around with LSD. The period of free love, you know, was kind of coming to a close. I was used to going to concerts and everybody was kissing everybody. So, you know, sexuality was out there um, of all different forms and fashions. So there was a segment of society that really wasn't all that shocked by what happened in this movie. Um, I think for a lot of people my age at the time, they found the movie totally boring. So, you know, because we weren't that mature yet. But there was the other side going on at the time that was pretty, pretty left wing out there. It was a pushback on the war in Vietnam, which still was going on and raging. So it was it was a. I think it was timely that that came up in 71. And I think John had a sense of the other part of culture that was happening and and you know, obviously it stood the test of time. Well, let's dive into this relationship then. We'd like to hop over to Glenda Jackson's character. She's she's in this relationship with Murray, and right from the start of the film, she's getting frustrated. What is she getting out of this relationship? What's working for her, Spencer? I think she's terribly unhappy in her work and her purpose. And I think this young gentleman made her feel important beyond just a transactional purpose. You know, I think a lot of the men in her life treated her for what she could give them. And I think instead, this young man made her feel a little more valuable um, than just, you know, for what she had to offer. 
you know, she was a woman without children, um, taking care of her friend's children. And he showed up and was part of that with her without the strings attached with that. So I think he just made her feel like she had a reason for being made, maybe made her feel a little more organized in her life too, you know, cause otherwise I think she was a little bit of a mess. Let's be realistic. So it kind of kept her moving forward. Don, what did you, what was your read on Glenda Jackson? I think she got a lot out of the relationship. He was young. He was flamboyant. He was exciting. He was living this other life that she wasn't. I think she loved him. Um, If you look back at her visit to her home, you could see a lot of what was underpinning her with her distant father and her mother who just toughed it out. An interesting sidebar, though, I didn't realize this until I looked into it. The woman who played Glenda Jackson's mother was a famous Shakespearean actress in Great Britain. She was um, Edith Margaret Ashcroft. She also won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in David Lean's A Passage to India. So she was an extremely, I thought she had a strength on the screen that was like, she was an incredible actress. Well, she had the accolades to go along with it and really got almost no note of that, you know, as the movie came out. And I didn't realize it until I looked her up. But I think Glenda had a satisfying relationship. I think she wanted it permanent, knew it couldn't be, was frustrating. And it led to a lot of angst in her life. Now, Peter Finch's doctor, of course, has had a rougher time. He's had to be in the closet most of his life. And now he's in this relationship with this young man that is only part-time, but he's much more resigned to it than Glenda is. One of the first things he tells one of his patients is that people can learn to live on very little. How much of this relationship is working for him? I've got an interesting quote that I got from a well-known movie critic says Sunday bloody Sunday is about people who suffer from psychic amputation, not civility. And that this film is not an affirmation, but a tragedy. I think Sunday bloody Sunday is a masterpiece, but I don't think it's about what everyone else thinks it's about. This is not a movie about the loss of love, but about its absence. I would say for the doctor that this relationship is aspirational perhaps because he has been so stymied by his faith and by his, the expectations placed upon him. And so he sees this young man with nothing holding him back. I mean, he looks at that art piece, like it's every dream he ever had, you know, that never came true. And I I think he doesn't want to hold that young man back, but he also selfishly, wants to keep that passion in his own life just as a reminder of what could have been for him. So I think that's what he brings for him. But unfortunately, someone with dreams and aspirations, inevitably they're going to leave you (laughs) because they have somewhere else to go. Meanwhile, the doctor is so kind of trapped in his own life. He can't, can't get out of it. It was really brought forward during the bar mitzvah because I think that was John telling us here's my fate. All the women saying, when are you going to get married? You know, this just showed he was stuck. You know, he's 
making the best of it. But and obviously that's how John felt and John experienced that. So we're we're seeing a really good portrayal, I think, through those scenes of the bar mitzvah, which what he was experiencing. He uses a ringing phone constantly throughout the film too, because Peter and to an extent Glenda, they're married to their jobs. They are constantly getting calls for uh, Peter from his patients and in the middle of anything, dinner, sex, the phone's ringing and he jumps to answer it, which I thought was a very timely aspect of the piece. And it's such an aggressive ringtone that Schlesinger puts in there. It gets very, just sets your teeth on edge when it, when you, whenever you hear it. It also established the initial tension between the two lovers because when it rang, you could see in each of their faces, is it him or is it her calling? You know, it was kind of that, that question mark was there, which I loved. Now let's talk about the artist Murray Head. He is a bit of an enigma for me because he has a life outside of these two. He has access to lots of young and exciting artists his age who would certainly be into him. But he chooses these two folks. And while they certainly get a bit of bohemian zing from him, they seem so desperate to domesticate him. When he goes out with Glenda, it's to babysit kids or play in the park. When he goes with Peter, it's to sort of be the arm candy at these rather stodgy parties. What is he getting out of his relationship with the two of them? I, I, I think, think he brings some stability. That's you know, exactly what I was going to say, Don. Order in his life of chosen chaos in the art world. I mean, I think he, he recharges his batteries with them. And he, I think he had sincere feelings and love towards them. And that fulfilled part of what he needed in his life. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think it's a way for him to not have to activate. You know, he can kind of turn himself off because he's just amusing on his own, just his, his being, his aura. I also think that he is a mirror for them. And so each of them kind of layers on to him their desire so that kind of allows him to check out to a certain extent because he just kind of is the empty vessel for them to use as they please. Schlesinger once said in an interview that if he had the chance to recast, he'd have found someone funnier who could have made them both laugh. But I do see the sense of the advantage of him being a cipher is that they can just pr- project all of their desires and frustrations and things onto him. And, w- and at one point, he tells Glenda, you're not getting enough, but you're getting all that there is. And I sort of interpreted that as he's just he's not as deep as they are. He's he's too, he's he's very young and he doesn't have all the ang- angst and the baggage that the the two of them have. And so what would what would happen if he said, yes, I'm going I choose you. I'm going to settle down with you. What in that relationship would change? Because they'd still have the phone dragging them away from him. And they still Peter still wouldn't be able to introduce him to his parents. (laughs) Would either of those relationships work if if Murray picked one of them full time? I think he's too restless. I think for him, I don't think that's satisfying enough or fulfilling enough for him. And for them, I think they would run into a wall eventually where they realize that they're just speaking to themselves, (laughs) essentially, um, and not really getting any feedback. So I think that would be 
the end of that. Yeah, I think if Schlesinger had made Murray the a stronger character, we would have lost some of the insights of the other two characters. I think having him almost more neutral really let us get into the minds of Glenda and Peter Finch more. I think you make a really interesting point, though, in that the journey of LGBTQA plus representation understanding is not a linear journey. I think, you know, we we always think of it as, oh, we're improving, we're improving, we're moving up. But in actuality, every, you know, with every rise comes some kind of pitfall. Who would you recommend this film to today? I would recommend it almost to anyone that's at least of a mature age. I won't put a number on it, but I think it would be a good experience to plug into movie a movie that doesn't have the pace and the angst and the drive that modern film does in general and experience a movie that you have to be absorbed in and follow the pace of the movie. You know, it's, it's, you have to participate and keep engaged. And I think that for a lot of people is, is a new experience or a re experience based on what we've been getting out of the industry in the last 20 years. It's a rare film for the pacing and the sincerity and the maturity uh, of the whole thing. I, I think it's, I think it's something that everyone should experience and they can use it to contrast other films by. I would definitely say actors just for the minor moments that mean a lot. And just, as I said, finding mindfulness and stillness as an actor, not having to project everything, but really just feel something and let that guide the performance. I would say to anyone that is afraid of making this kind of leap where, you know, they feel like they can't engage in a non-traditional relationship. I think this is actually, I know it doesn't end well for everybody, but I actually think it does reflect positively on the opportunity that this kind of situation can provide. And that during the time they were all together, I never felt like they were hurting. You know, I felt like they were all pretty happy with, the circumstances they had with, you know, minor, minor complaints here, there, just, you have to leave now. Why? You know, but I think for the most part, um, I think it was a really positive scenario for everybody involved. And I think they took a lot of joy from it. And I think a lot of us get wrapped up in the long-term projection of what our life will be and who we'll be with and what relationship is ahead of us. And I think, this is a really nice kind of presentation of a time capsule moment where three people were really happy under different circumstances than, than what are expected and, um, and really found kind of a situation that worked for all three of them. So I think that speaks positively of polyamory and everything else too, you know, which is a even further stretch, I would say, but kind of shows that just keep yourself open to the relationships and the opportunities that may be ahead of you, no matter what they, how they may conflict with your conception of what a relationship is. It's like in music, the word, the note not played 
this is a perfect example of a movie where the word not spoken has a lot of power. The silent moments in this movie were powerful. I want to thank you both so much for watching this film and discussing it with me. This has been a lot of fun, and it's nice to see the work with fresh eyes. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Spencer. Yeah, nice to see you, Don. Right. Good night. Bye, guys. Good night, good night. And that's our Season 3 finale. We'll be taking a hiatus to work on some other projects. If you're interested in queer media, I recommend checking out the podcasts Bad Gay Movies, Horror Queers, and Gayest Episode Ever. The music you're listening to is Squares, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like us, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.